you're constantly going to get from CEOs, from salespeople, from product people, from everyone. This company is doing this and it's working well. Why aren't we doing this? And just remember, if you're doing a million things, you're not going to do anything well. And you're going to feel burned out. And that's when the Sunday scaries, that's when you have imposter syndrome, that's when everything adds up. Hello and welcome to the Delivering Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and today I am super excited to be sharing my conversation with Natalie Marco Tulio. Natalie is the head of growth at Novatic. They're one of the sponsors for the show, and over the last few years, Natalie's become a friend. She's a one-person head of growth at Novatic, so I was super excited to have her on the podcast to explore what it's like being a one-person head of growth, what are some of the speed bumps that she encountered, some of the potholes that folks who are listening can avoid, and some of the qualities and traits that someone needs to be successful in a role like this. In addition to that, Natalie reports to Novatic's CEO. And so I was excited to chat with her about how she manages that relationship, how she builds trust, how she manages the one-on-ones, what systems she has so that she doesn't get those late night slacks saying, hey, do you have a second that causes everybody anxiety? And we talked about imposter syndrome. If you work in growth on a weekly basis, you're going to feel like you don't know the answer and you feel like you're out of your element. And so I was excited to talk to Natalie about how she manages her imposter syndrome when it flares up. We covered a ton of things along the way. It's a great episode, and I know you're going to enjoy it. This episode of the Delivering Value podcast is brought to you by Novatic. If you're listening to this and you have followed me online, it should be no surprise that Novatic is a sponsor. I talk about the interactive demo space all the time. As a former two-time head of growth, I learned pretty quickly that there's a huge percentage of signups that create an account, poke around for a couple minutes, and leave and never come back. If you survey these folks, they usually say, hey, I just wanted to see the product in action for a few minutes. I'm not ready to buy. I don't want to upload my stuff. I just wanted to see it. And so creating some version of your product that's ungated, that people can play with on your website, tends to be super helpful for that population of people. It increases the quality of your users. It weeds out all the clunkers, so from clouding up your data. And it starts the onboarding process way before someone even gets into the product. It's a huge part of the growth operating system. And if you're looking for help building this, so you don't have to take months and months doing it in-house like my engineers did. Use Novatic. They create third-party tools that help you do exactly this. I send a lot of my advising clients their way, and they're a great product. Want to take a second and thank Mad Kudu for sponsoring the show. The average SaaS business has a hybrid motion these days. You know, when I was head of growth at Wistit and at Postscript, although we called ourselves PLG, there was a sales team at both companies. Both companies did some outbound. We did inbound. There was the product-led freemium or free trial motion. And wrangling all that stuff to understand lead scoring and quality and PQL routing is a bear. And when I worked at Postscript, we had a Stanford PhD. had a PhD in data science, one of the smartest people I've ever met, spend weeks and weeks and weeks putting together this insane predictive model using our behavioral data to understand who was likely to convert and to upgrade. And it took weeks of doing this. We weren't really able to adjust it after the fact, and it ended up being something that was hard to maintain. And what's great is that now there's these whole suite of tools out there that can help you do this way faster. So Madkudu is typically the one that I send my clients to that if I had in my previous world, those head of growth would have made my life way easier. And what's nice is that they balance the hybrid motion really well. So if you're trying to wrangle PQLs, PQAs, and figure out lead scoring across your hybrid model, check out Madkudu. It's where I send my clients. I want to just start with a quick, like 90 second spiel. For those who aren't familiar with you and your background and your journey, can you just give us the 10,000 foot overview of like 
what got you to this point career-wise? So I actually started as a growth hacking intern, which I always laugh about because I feel like these days in growth, the word growth hacking is such like a disrespected word. So I hate to admit it, but I was back in the day when it was SEO, digital ads, like how do you get everything to rank and how do you trick the system versus kind of sustainable long-term growth? But it was more just focused SEO ads. Then eventually, and at another B2B SaaS startup, then kind of just started taking over all of marketing because it was a small team. Someone else had to switch into another position, kind of just happened naturally. Also had a little bit in like operations and as a chief of staff, which I think really helps for growth because you learn a lot more how to be metrics focused, how to work with other departments. Then was a customer of Nevada at my past company, tried it out and was like, I want to get involved. And they were looking for someone to lead marketing. But it was funny when I joined, I spoke to them and said, I don't really want to just do marketing. Like I was just a chief of staff. I was very cross-functional. I want something that's a little more cross-functional. And that's ultimately how I landed on growth. Oh, super cool. And so you started in Nevada. How long have you been there? Been there for a year and a half now. And the team is how large internally? About 15 people were hiring. So so subject to change by the time that this comes out. So 15 people, your head of growth, one person head of growth, like one person team as of today? Yep, just me. Awesome. So I'm excited to dig into this because I imagine a ton of people who will be listening to this are in the same role, being hired into the same role. I just feel like with the explosion of growth in PLG over the last couple of years, there's a lot of you out there. So I'm excited to go a little bit deeper. What's an average week in the life of a one-person head of growth team working at a fast-paced startup like Nevada? I'd have to break this out into two different points. Obviously, it changes week to week, but I do think there is some stability. So I'd say about 60% goes to reoccurring tasks. Like the only way you can do as much as you're doing at a one person or one team at a startup like this is you have to get really good at systematizing those tasks that you know are working. So for example, for us, ads, SEO, content production. So a lot of it that we're focusing on is content repurposing and just making sure each week we're producing something and of high value. And then another 40%, I would say, is new experiments. So for example, this week, we actually, this is going to be shocking, but we just launched our first LinkedIn ads. Um, we're trying to do also some growth experiments within the product. So I try to leave time also to tr tackle something new, but not tackle too much at once. Like generally, I'd say every month, one to two new experiments. Cool. So 60% doing stuff that already has a system, iterating on it, improving it, making it better. 20% exploring net new stuff. So that ladders up to 80% of your time. What about the other 20%? I'd say other 20 is just random. So strategy calls, I actually still sometimes help with operation and billing because we're a self-smart startup and I have an operations background. So kind of random stuff, yep. wherever the company needs. And also just like meetings, one-on-ones. Yep. And I think that's pretty common, especially with a one-person team and especially at an early stage startup. But for whatever reason, people that work in growth kind of end up being this Swiss army knife, where if there's stuff that doesn't fit perfectly into one of the lanes for these other teams, a lot of times it ends up going to the growth person. And so I'm wondering, how do you defend that 80%? Like, how do you make sure that it doesn't turn into 70%, 60% so that other teams or other obligations don't eat into that time that's so important for you to keep doing what works and iterating? And then also exploring that new stuff, which could turn into future programs. I think I have like multiple prongs of approach to protect that, that me time or those reoccurring tasks. I think the biggest thing 
is one, if someone comes to you with a new idea or say, why aren't we doing this? Our competitor's doing this. First thing I always ask is what is the why behind it? Because you'll find that people often will be thinking of new tactics to solve a problem that you're already approaching. So for example, if someone's saying, you know, why aren't we doing TikTok? We need to have our name out there more. Well, you could address it. Well, we're working on brand awareness from this podcast we just launched. And actually, we think our audience is going to be here, not on TikTok. So that's why we chose the channel of this podcast. I think leadership sometimes and other departments think too much in channels versus the why behind it. Okay, so keep going. So first line of defense is to understand the why, go a little bit deeper. Poking at it is kind of how I think about that. Yep. I would say oftentimes there's still the, okay, but we should still try it. That doesn't always work. Next is, I think you have to explain very clearly what you're going to swap out if you swap this in. You have to be very protective of your time. You can only do so many things. So if someone's asking you, you know, why don't we experiment with TikTok? I think it's very fair to say, well, again, like we just launched this podcast. If we experiment with that, I won't have the time and effort towards this podcast. And then you can always follow up with, but next quarter or next month, I have the time slotted for a new project. So you can kind of expectation set them a little bit, but it shouldn't be drop everything I'm currently doing to work on this new thing, because then that's not fair to the time and effort you put into the thing you're currently working on that you thought through and had strategy behind. Hmm. And is there a third line of defense or are those the two main stops? I think the very last thing is you can always, I love using this, is just say like, okay, let's experiment with it. And I've had this sometimes turned on me now by my team. Like they're so used to this that if they want something, they'll their instant thing will be like, oh, it's just an experiment. It's like, oh, use that too much. But you can always say, okay, let's run a two-week test or let's do it in a really small way that doesn't involve a lot of resources, either on your time or engineering. Like, what is the simplest way we can prove this out? Yeah, I love that. So focusing on these things, having a little bit of slack in the line for reacting to these other things that are coming in. From the outside looking in, things seem like they're going pretty well over there at Nevatic. Everywhere I look, I see y'all's name. I keep seeing more logos pop up, more of these demos on the website. Does it feel good on the inside? Does it feel like you're at a company that's starting to figure it out, starting to gain some traction, maybe could turn into one of those companies that other people look up to in a couple of years? So it's a funny mix. If I look at it objectively, like if I'm not me in this scenario and I look at the numbers, if I look at the facts, it does feel like there's something here. And I always say with startups, like a million things could happen. You never want to count your chickens too early. I think that's the expression. But you always want to know, like, there's a lot of market forces. There could constantly be new competitors. You never want to get basically too cocky or too sure. But by all of the metrics that we've calculated and all that, it feels like we're headed in the right direction. If I look at this from myself, it's actually a really scary time and potentially the scariest time because now we have expectations. You know, we're not just a little startup anymore who anything we do is a win. Now people are looking at us and we're a brand and we're a logo. So people expect us to have high quality things or are judging what we're doing. So I felt this a few times on the inside myself. I think a lot of times you think, well, I've been at a couple of companies where things haven't gone so well. That's why it hasn't felt good to me. I've been at this company, they've struggled. They haven't really found product market fit. They had a competitor pop up that ate our market share, whatever it is. And what I've experienced is actually the opposite of that. Where When you're at a company, when things are going well, a lot of times there's more pressure, more pressure to grow as the company grows, more pressure to hit the next targets. It's not like the targets get smaller. And so the pressure compounds over time. What was your old job is no longer your job anymore. Your job is constantly changing. There's just a ton of things you need to constantly adapt to. And sometimes that doesn't feel good, which is kind of what I'm hearing you describe. It's funny. It's sometimes when I'm getting the compliments, which are so nice, and our team is really great about shouting each other out, calling out wins. 
but I realize that sometimes those times when I'm most anxious inside, because part of the reason I like startups is, you know, we're smaller, we're nimble. There's not the pressure of working at a big organization and having your boss looming over you every second. So suddenly when it, again, when we're getting some of this traction and success, then it's, oh, there are eyes on me. And a lot of this is, you know, we're just figuring it out as we're going, but we can't just be as reactive anymore suddenly if people are watching us. And so what do you do? So you feel this way, you feel it in the moment, you feel it week to week as you kind of analyze what's going on. How do you personally manage that? I think one is just taking a step back and remembering, like if this all went away, if this, none of this worked, if suddenly we went, if our growth stopped, we'd all be okay. We'd all find other jobs. There'd be more startups. And that's part of being at a startup. There is always a high chance that it couldn't work out and that you'll be okay and you'll learn from it. So I think that's number one is I just need to get out of my bubble. Two is remembering that there have been times in my career where things haven't gone well before, where leads have dried out, where there have been external factors that we couldn't control. And knowing that we always found a new solution or a new channel or new idea or experiment. Like in some ways, like don't get complacent, like always be thinking, what could still be optimized? And then there's always a million things to optimize and you can improve on. Love that. In addition to those skills, you, you started to talk about a few of them, staying with what works and the process that got you here to continue to iterate, to get to the next level. And just reminding yourself that, that you can make it through this, right? That there's other challenges and adversity that you've hit and you've made it through those things. I'm curious if there's other skills, soft skills in general, or mindset approaches that have been helpful or are helpful to other folks who are in roles like yours. I think the biggest thing when I was thinking about this is, and this sounds kind of cheesy, but I don't know a better way to phrase it, is like buyer and user empathy. It's crazy how I think so much of our marketing and just go-to-market strategy at Nevada has just been, okay, if I was buying this software from start to finish, how would I want that experience to be? And that goes everything from, you know, who do you market to? What messaging do we use? How do we want the onboarding experience to be? How do we want the handoff process to be? And it in that way, when I talk before about like what's scary, it's, well, there's always something we can make a little better for the buyer. And every single time we've done that, it's made an improvement in our go-to-market motion. I think on top of that, I touched about this before, but really prioritization and being able to communicate your goals effectively to other team members and what worked and didn't work. So much, as I mentioned, if, if you're just like, okay, we're going to work on this over this and not listen to your CEO's idea, well, that might cause some tension and then he might push you to micromanage you a little more, she, versus if you can properly communicate, no, this is why I'm working on this. This is my hypothesis. This is what will work and won't work and why I'm doing it now. You'll get a lot more freedom and flexibility. It won't be as much micromanaging. And then ultimately you can run more experiments and see more success. And I want to go a little bit deeper on this if you're comfortable sharing. How do you do that? Or do you have a system for it? Because you mentioned communication on two things, and I, and I totally agree for what it's worth. You talked about communicating your goals, so like what you're working on and why. And then you also talked about communicating your learnings, like here's how stuff is going that we're working on. Let's say there's someone listening to this. They just got hired as head of growth at a 15-person company somewhere else. They know they need to do these things. How should they go about it? So step number one and putting on my like chief of staff hat here is I think, and OKRs don't have to be the ultimate way you do it. But every quarter, I, I think quarterly is a good basis, but every quarter align with the entire go-to-market team on what is your main goals as a go-to-market team for the quarter. Because then later down the line, when someone's asking you, oh, we should try this or this, you can point back and say, our number one objective this quarter was to, let's say, reduce churn or to increase free trial activation. 
if I go make a TikTok, that does not help with free trial activation. So that is step number one. Like, make sure you're aligned. I think OKRs are a good framework for it, but I don't think it's the only one. It's just one of the most well-known and adopted. Then clearly lay out the ways that you are going to approach this OKR and the experiments and strategies you're going to do it. And what I have is a notion board with probably five to six big tasks or projects. So those are those net new experiments I talked about, not the reoccurring tasks that I'm going to work on each quarter. It's visible to everyone. So everyone can see my brainstorming, my thought process, my little notes that I leave to myself. Everyone can understand what I'm doing day to day and what is the big project for this quarter. So then again, if someone comes to me with a new project, I can say, well, these, you can see the projects I'm working on. Do you think this is a higher priority than this? And does it accomplish the ultimate OKR that we agreed on? And do you roadshow that or like share it privately with anyone before you just publish it on the company wiki and kind of cross your fingers that people read it and understand it? Always with my CEO, we have like long conversations around, do these goals align with what you were thinking for this quarter? Is this OKR? Obviously the entire go-to-market team. Also with sales, making sure that the targets we're hitting, because ultimately at the end of the day, like we still are partially sales-led. I still have to provide pipeline for my sales team. So making sure that my experiments are also in conjunction with things that are going to make sure we're bringing in revenue, bringing in pipeline. So really running it by the two of them and making sure they both feel comfortable with the goals. And how much revising would you expect when you do that? Because you've got your plan, you've gone into the lab, you've thought about it, you published this plan, you know it's the right plan, but now you're sharing it with other people. How much judging goes on? I'd say the first time you do it, it's probably going to be maybe you'll have it 70% right, 30% judging, fixing, editing. The more you do it, the more comfortable you should get. You should also have maybe past numbers or metrics that can help you. And then now I'd say I'm closer to like 90% of what I put out ultimately will get approved. And is that 90 now because you've had more reps at doing this type of activity or is it because you have more alignment with those two collaborators or both? I think both. I think I'm much better understanding in our growth of Nevada as a company not just like go-to-market growth, Where what do we need to prioritize? So for example, when I first joined, I really prioritized just like lead gen activities. I prioritized ads and really just trying to get as many users as possible to our platform because we needed to get users to get more data to understand what was working, what is our ICP, really understanding all those metrics. And the only way you do that is by having enough volume. So while that wasn't always my favorite just to prioritize like ads and SEO, that was needed to come first. Now, as we've gotten those kind of solid groundworks and we've had a lot of much more competitive market, now I'm focusing a lot more on demand gen, brand work, getting the name out there, a little more of my marketing background, honestly, than growth, because we realize there's going to be a leaders formed in the category in the next few months. It's really important that now we put in that work. So I think that's a lot of it, like always taking a step back and thinking, why right now should I be prioritizing this tactic or this strategy? And then it becomes kind of obvious, hopefully, to the rest of your go-to-market team, like why you're doing something now versus later. It makes a ton of sense. And it seems like as time goes on, that alignment improves. And that's why that, that ratio of revising goes up from 70% to, to some number higher. I, I asked this question for a specific reason, because as a coach, I work with a lot of folks who think in their mind, when I become head of, then I'll know what to do. And then people will 
I'll have the influence that I want and people will do what I say we should do. And right now it's not happening because I'm just a growth manager, growth PM, growth marketing manager, whatever it is. But when I'm head of growth at this next job, then all of a sudden people will listen to me. What I've learned is that that's not really the right goal and that everybody needs help revising and improving their plan. And so almost going into it and expecting that to happen is a much more realistic place to be than thinking, hey, I'm going to communicate this plan and everyone's going to go, okay, great. What do you need to do it? Okay, great. Go do that. Okay. What resources do you need? Okay, perfect. We'll go hire them. Right? Like that doesn't exist. Exactly. I also think when I talked about that lead gen versus demand gen model, beyond just thinking about the company growth, thinking about myself as a head of growth, the first thing you kind of have to do is really prove yourself, right? You obviously, you have this great background. You've been hired for a reason, but it's not until people see in action what you can do that they might start trusting a little more or maybe trusting your gut or not feeling like they have to double check things as much. So I'd say the, one of the first things when you first join is pick up those small wins. Like lead gen, unfortunately, is one of the, or activation is some of the easiest to show, but like figure out where you can make the most impact the fastest first. And suddenly once you get that trust and you've earned that, then it's much easier to can have a little more leeway. Yeah, 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 100%. You got to build up that momentum a little bit. Exactly. So going back a little bit, you said that there's two other parts of communicating that are really important to my role. One, you says communicating your goals, which is what we were just chatting about. The other side was communicating what you're learning, hits or misses along the way. Do you have a system or a cadence for that? I'd say a few different ones. One is weekly, we have a team meeting where I present our metrics. So I present how many new users, how much pipeline. So making sure that everyone knows week over week, if we tried a new campaign and it went well, or if we tried a new experiment, it went well. Obviously, sometimes you need more than a week to see the data, but kind of getting some early metrics. Then on top of that, every quarter, one thing I love that we do is we have a quarter in review where we talk about wins, learnings, and then what could have gone better and what we're going to work towards next quarter. I think that's really helpful because that gives you enough time to zoom out and again, go back to that OKR you set and say, did I hit this? Yes or no. And it's okay. The answer is no. Then you're going to share what am I going to do next quarter to try to hit it. Almost like a, like a mini retro. Exactly. Yeah. And the whole company does it. So every department does it, which is also helpful because you also get to see, oh, this person maybe hit their goal through this way. That's interesting. Maybe I should approach it like this or this part of the company's maybe needs a little more help right now as head of growth. How can I help them? Who kind of coordinates? Like, does every department or capability sort of do this in their own silo or does someone come in and facilitate that from the outside? So our CEO does have a template that, and we've just used this every quarter. So now it's become a lot easier. So there is some, it's not like everyone's just creating their own little deck that out of nowhere, we all have a template to follow, but every head of department gets to decide what goes on that template, what was the wins, the learnings, the losses. It's like a little system so that you can get better at getting better is how I'm hearing you say it. Yeah. And I think also just taking some time to celebrate wins and learnings too is so important. When things are moving so fast and kind of going back to that stress of it, you also have to enjoy it. Like I can't just get stressed out when things are going well. You do need to take some time to step back and say, this is something exciting I'm part of. And because it helps motivate you and fuel you and fuel the rest of the company. So I think that part's also really important. I find for whatever reason, if you work in growth, you are so good at ignoring the wins and only focusing on what you haven't done yet that most people need to be hit over the head with that to actually turn it into action. Do you have a system or some recommendation or advice for someone who's listening to this 
who has been ignoring all of their wins and only focusing on the negative stuff and probably feeling stressed out and anxious and unworthy. So what I will say is I think to work in growth, you have to have a growth mindset. That sounds kind of obvious and cheesy, but every single person I met in growth, like that is the clear differentiator. So I think if you have a growth mindset, it's very hard to appreciate yourself because your whole way of thinking is how can I improve? That being said, I do think taking a step back and looking at things even just like yearly, not just quarterly. Sometimes week by week, you're like, oh, the you know activations went up by this percentage, but that's not a huge amount. When you zoom out, sometimes that's really when you're like, oh, I did make an impact. Like This really has affected the business. So I'd say give yourself some time to zoom out on the data, appreciate it, take a pause and understand what you did. And remember, by learning what you did that worked well, you'll grow and get better. So if you need to force yourself into more growth mindset, know that taking this time also helps you improve. Yeah, it's it's a great reminder for everybody. We talked a little bit about some of the characteristics for someone to be successful in a role like yours. And I'm wondering about the flip side. You've covered a few of them a little bit here, but I'm wondering, like, what are the hardest parts about being a one-person head of growth? Some of the hardest is you have to be very independent and okay with not knowing all the answers. Usually in a larger team, you can ask your boss, is this right? Yes or no? Is this work before? Yes, no. Well, one, you don't have a boss. It's you. And your CEO doesn't know more about growth than you. That's what's also hard is unless they came from a growth background, which they probably didn't, it's not like even your direct boss knows more about the specific topic than you. And then two, at a startup, there's no playbooks. There's no, has this worked before? Yes, no because everything's constantly changing. So if you're not someone who's okay with a little more unknown situations, not okay with experimenting and figuring it out, I think that can be really challenging. That's kind of my threshold for startups in general. Like if you're someone who loves a checklist of how to do things, if you're someone who's going to follow the IKEA furniture setup, startups might be a little harder for you. For sure. And it's so true. When you're the team lead and it's a small company, there's really not a ton of resources. So you kind of need to be a self-starter you said something really interesting that really resonated with me. You said you have to be okay not knowing all the answers. How in the world is someone supposed to be okay with not knowing all the answers when your job is to have the answers? I learned this just from being thrown thing after thing that I didn't know how to do and just not really given the choice of saying no. I'd say this really started at my first company. I started as an intern and within six months, I had to lead all of marketing. And there was no real no because there weren't any other options. And in some ways, I always really thank my first founder for that because at some point, you just got used to it. It was like muscle memory. Like they'd throw out something new and you'd be like, okay, I guess I'm going to learn how to do it. And I guess it's going to work or it's not. And I'll learn from it and I'll survive. Like in some ways, I think surviving or failing is one of the best things that you can do because once you live and move on from failing once, nothing is as scary. You also talked about something a few minutes ago that I thought was really interesting, which is, you know, a lot of times your CEO isn't the subject matter expert. And in fact, it's probably better that way because if your CEO is the subject matter expert, then you run the risk of like meddling, right? Where they have more domain expertise than you do. And then they're sort of leaning over your shoulder, but not in a good way. I'm curious to know, how do you manage your relationship with your CEO? I think number one is you have to really figure out the way they communicate and what their number one objectives are. My boss, for example, will say like, oh, let's try this, going back to it. It took a while for me to understand how to get to that why, just because we are, we communicated very differently. I always joke, you know, I grew up in Northeast. I'm pretty direct. 
he grew up in the Midwest. Like it just took us a little while to get used to that. How do we get out of each other? And so always, I think it's kind of frustrating in the situation. You're like, why aren't we agreeing? Why aren't we seeing eye to eye? Why is there this disconnect? But you really have to learn, like, how do they communicate? What does this actually mean? What are they trying to accomplish here? And don't be afraid to push them a step further to really figure out the why. And then on top of that, like, try to always think about their main goals. I think it's very easy for us to say, why don't we try this experiment? Well, what's the board going to say about that? Is that going to affect revenue? Are they raising right now? And they really need to focus on growth above all else. That's where going back to those OKRs, if you agree with your CEO and the rest of the go-to-market team, what you should be working on just makes it so much easier because you know why they're pushing for something or maybe hesitant about something. And then you can realize, okay, do we have a shared goal? Because if you have a shared goal, then you can figure it out. Then it's just a conversation of the channels and the tactics and all that. But it's if you don't have a shared goal, you don't have alignment. Like That really needs to be addressed or else no, no tactics or anything are going to be addressed. And then you're just going to keep going in circles. And so it makes sense that there's this period of time early on in the relationship, early on in your tenure in a new role when you're reporting to an executive where you have to gain that alignment, right? You said, hey, it takes some time to, to like one, kind of feel out each other's vibe and kind of get a sense for how each other communicates and then also to figure out their why. With the benefit of hindsight, if there's someone listening to this that starting a new role, maybe they're in this period now, they hear that, they go, oh, that's me. How do they shortcut that? So one thing we actually did do that I really love is everyone who joins Novatic has a little about me card that they have to fill out. And not only is it just, you know, I like to hike and bike, but it's also I work best in the mornings. I like to go to the gyms at these times. I might be offline during those times. I communicate like X. So if I communicate this way, this is why. For example, I won't say exactly who, but one of our new members put, I don't like to speak up in meetings. I might put it in the notes. I might message you after, but I'm generally a little shyer or like to take my time to process rather than say in the meeting. If we didn't know that about this person, you might be in a meeting and get kind of frustrated. You're like, why isn't this person contributing? Why are they talking? Do they not care? But since I knew that going into meetings, it helped me work with that person to find a, a cadence that worked and understood why they were communicating the way they did. So I think that exercise really helped. I'd take it a step further and have your first one-on-one -on -one just really diving into how you like to communicate, how you like to work, what is your working style, what are your goals. I think also the in-person conversation can just really add to that because writing it down, you can, you can kind of interpret how you want versus really hearing it directly from their mouth. So what I'm hearing you say is before you sit down, and this is, it sounds like you with either managing up or also managing down or with other collaborators to really write out who are you, what matters to you, how do you like to work, how do you like to communicate, um, and you share like some nuance there, and then you send it to the person asynchronously so they can have time to review it, and then you discuss it live. Is that what I'm hearing? We did the async. I think one thing we could have been better about is dis we discussed it a little bit live, but being very intentional that some of your first meetings and giving that the space it needs. I think so often when we have one-on-ones, it is 95% tactical things and maybe 5%, how you doing? How's work going? Kind of yep. shoving it in there. My next piece of advice was also going to be, don't just do this at the beginning, but have meetings specifically for catch-ups where you talk about what is working well with our communication, what is not working, how can we improve? And don't just throw it in with regular one-on-ones because there's always going to be something that's more important than talking about this. But then this is never going to get resolved if you don't talk about it. This is such good advice, right? So there's 
so many people out there who report to a founder or they report to a CEO, they report to some executive and they know it's not going well. And they think it's the executive's fault or the executive's job to figure out. And because they're not the executive or they're in a first time leadership position themselves, they don't know that a big part of their job is to manage up in that way. And that managing up isn't telling the person above you what to do. It's letting them know what you need from them to be more successful. And sometimes that's a change in how you communicate or what you work on or what you focus on. It's just really good advice for anyone who's listening to this. And last thing I'll add is, especially working on a startup, you always have to take a step back and remember your founders were not professional bosses. They might not have been professional leaders. Often a founder was very good at getting something from zero to where they are now that does not necessarily mean they were expert leaders, took courses, took training. So if you're going from a bigger corporation where you're used to that, you have to sometimes remember, like, it's not out of that they don't care or that they don't want to be better. It's, it might just be out of pure ignorance. Like, they've never done it before. And cutting them some slack, too, I think helps. Totally. There's a bunch of folks who I'll coach. And I'll say, well, how are you working with your boss? Most of them report to the CEO, sometimes the COO. And they'll say, well, once in a while, my boss will reach out and we'll chat and we'll talk about, like, what I'm working on. And I'll say, great. Does that happen on a frequent schedule? And they'll say, no, it kind of happens once in a while, like it's on the calendar, but then we always reschedule it. And so it happens once in a while. And I'll say, okay, great. When you have that meeting, who sets the agenda and what's on it? And they'll say, well, I kind of just sort of, I, I like have my list and they kind of have their list. And then we get in the room and we don't talk about my list. Typically we talk about their list. So I'm curious, one, is that how it goes for you? And two, if it's not how it goes for you, how do you manage it so that it doesn't go like that? I'm going to sound like a broken record, but again, something I picked up as a chief of staff, maybe the lesson is everyone should take a year doing a little bit of chief of staff work. But what we do instead of just the one-offs, like, hey, can we talk about this, is we have an ongoing Notion doc that we both can see always, we can always add to it. And we meet, me and my CEO meet twice a week. Almost every other member of the go-to-market team, I meet once a week. And we also have a Notion doc. And so anything we want to talk about from high-level strategy to just some tactical thing we put on this document. So before going into the meeting, I can see, okay, my CEO wants to talk about these things. If I have time during that day, or I try to like prep for all my meetings the day before, I'll go and maybe add some notes or maybe can answer something just real fast so I don't even have to talk about it. Or just get an idea of what we're going to talk about so there's never that scary, oh no, my CEO called me into a meeting, what are we going to talk about? And then on top of that, well, the thing I love most about this is it eliminates those one-off slacks. Because so often, right, like you have a thought or you have a question and your natural reaction is, oh, I should email or Slack my boss about it. But if you have this ongoing Notion doc, then you just add it to the doc. They can see it. If they want to respond to it, they can. But it really eliminates the amount of times you're taking out of your like working zones and your working blocks because you're getting those slacks. There's nothing worse than getting that slack, especially from someone above you that says, hey, can we chat for a second? And you go from zero to a thousand in terms of your blood pressure and your anxiety. And you wonder what it's going to be. I'm getting fired or it's always the worst thing that could happen. And usually it's something really benign. And they're like, hey, I just wanted to talk to you about this project. It was top of mind. I just didn't want to let it fester in my mind. I had to, I had to tell you. And so one of the ways that you mitigate for that is that you have this running doc that you can both add to. Yeah. And then we also on that doc, when we're having the meeting, we'll say, okay, like at Natalie, we'll do this. At CEO, we'll do this. So then the next week, we could also refer back and say, oh, did we do those things? Yes, no, and know exactly who it was assigned to and what the action items were. And you said something else that I thought was really interesting. You said it really quickly. I want to go back to it. You said, the day before my meetings, I do all my meeting prep. What does that look like? And why doesn't everyone do whatever it is? It is 
saved me so many times. And there are so many days I don't want to do it. Like it's maybe one of the least favorite parts of my day, but I know it helps. So the way I organize my day, it's a little chaotic, but I don't have a to-do list. I just schedule everything I need to do with calendar reminders because I also like to be very intentional about in the mornings, I'm more creative. So I'm going to do creative work. In the afternoon, I'm more tired. So I'm going to do less creative work, let's say. I might also do blocks if I really don't want people to schedule over that time. And they know if it says block on it and it's clearly working time, if they have to, they can. But so I have my whole calendar always looks like a mess because it's covered in these little reminders, these tasks to do's. But every single day I have a reoccurring reminder that says next day prep. So I always go and I look, what are the meetings I have the next day? Do I have to prep anything? So even if I'm just doing a networking call, I try to create a Notion doc that says their name, their LinkedIn, a little bio about them. Again, if I have a one-on-one, do I have things prepared for a one-on-one? Because there's so many times I'm like, I'm not going to have time to do it at the end of the day. I'll do it right before the meeting. Even this podcast, I, I had more time blocked than I ended up being able to use to prep for the podcast. Luckily, I prepped before. But things come up. We get busy. So at the end of the day, it's always nice. You feel ready for the next day. You know what you're going to do the next day. That time is also when I decide what I'm going to do tomorrow generally. And you just feel like, okay, I'm prepared for tomorrow versus waking up and be like, oh my God, I have a million things and a million meetings. My system is not nearly as sophisticated as yours, but at some point in time, I started using my calendar as my to-do list because I found if I didn't do that, it wouldn't get done or I would end up working crazy late and just feeling miserable. And so I started batching things. And then I even took it a slightly different direction where I'll color code my calendar. So like, for example, this podcast on my calendar is orange. That's a trigger for me to be in a little bit more of a calm and an introspective state and a more interview state versus when I'm on coaching calls, it's green. And when I'm on advising calls, it's purple. When I'm doing deep work, it's black. And they're all just different triggers for me and my energy. Have you experimented with that? The different blocks and reminders are different colors. Not intentionally, it's just the way Google Calendar works. So that helps because I can quickly see, is this a longer block versus a short one? But I like that because I also like to know going into a day, is this a day where I'm on a lot of calls? Am I going to have to be high energy? Do I have five T's today instead of two? Or is this a day that I have some more reflective time? Can I maybe set a few hours aside? Can I go a little slower throughout my day? I think that helps just like prep what type of day it will be. Does it help with the Sunday scaries? It does. I try to also do a little bit of this on Sunday, which one thing I really try to be better about is not working on the weekends. I used to be much worse about that. And I've seen that if I don't give myself at least Saturday, like I don't go on LinkedIn, I don't do anything, but I do find it really helps just doing an hour Sunday night, kind of prepping the week out. That does help reduce those Sunday scaries because again, I know what's coming. I want to shift gears a little bit here. You've mentioned a few things that I found really interesting in our combo so far. So you've talked about, hey, I have had to get comfortable not knowing all the answers. I've had to find time so that I can figure things out that I might not know how to do. I've had to have a growth mindset and learn things that's exciting to me. I could talk to someone else. They'd say those same things and they could go on and on about how they feel like they haven't deserved this or that they feel like an imposter. I'm wondering how you're able to encounter those same things and, and be motivated and excited to figure them out versus feeling like, oh, geez, now I'm an intern being promoted into like a head of marketing at this company. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm frozen and I'm paralyzed by that feeling. I think to start, I definitely have imposter syndrome. I don't think if anyone doesn't, then it's almost slightly concerning. <laughs> so there are times when I am frozen and scared and don't feel like I know what I'm doing or feel overwhelmed. 
funny enough, I think the thing that really helped me was I ran track in college. That doesn't seem like it's related, but I had to run the 800, which anyone who runs track knows how miserable of a race that is. Okay. I've never run track. Give me just like 20 seconds of context here. So it's between a sprint and a distance race, but it's basically just like two laps, half a mile as fast as you can, like almost a sprint, but not fully. So it's not short enough where it's really painful, but it's over quick, but it's not long enough that you can kind of work your way into it. It's just two laps, all out pain. And it's funny, even in college, a lot of people be freaking out over tests or about assignments or things. And again, don't get me wrong. I've definitely had those little freakouts too, but I always center myself and think, well, it's not an 800. <laughs> and I know that's not universally applicable, but I'm sure we all have that thing, right? That felt so scary, so challenging, like you couldn't do it. And then you did it. And so that's just always my center point. And even to this day, I will be having a bad day. I'll be scared. And I think I don't have to run an 800 tomorrow. And it just gets you through. You know, it's so funny. So for me, the thing that makes my anxiety spike the most is public speaking. It just, for whatever reason, I've done it a million times. I've gotten feedback that I'm good at it. I always feel nervous and on edge beforehand. And whenever I feel that way, I always go back to, well, I'm not as nervous as when I asked my now wife's parents if I could marry her, right? It's like, that's the most nervous I've ever been in my entire life. And so when I feel myself getting nervous, I go, well, not nearly as crazy as that day was. I think we can handle this. So everybody's got something like that out there. Yeah, it's funny how also it's usually not something in your work life. Like your personal life, is, you've probably done something scarier than your work life and you know you've made it and overcome. So you can probably bring that same energy and keep overcoming. So I mentioned public speaking for me. I'm curious if you have a thing like that, where if you see it on the calendar, it always just gets the heart rate up a little bit. It's kind of public speaking. I've gotten a lot better, just the amount of podcasts, all those things I have to do. I don't do this as much now, but it used to be like board meetings, just anything where you have to prove that you're doing well or that you're smart, like any of those situations, maybe it's public speaking, maybe it's that. Like there's so much of that imposter syndrome anytime where, especially in growth, we have to show like, oh, this is all I did or this is why I'm doing this, why I'm being strategic. If I'm writing those things down, I know I can prove it. But sometimes having to talk to someone who I perceive as much smarter or much more experienced or all that, especially since sometimes I don't think I have as much experience with them, that's when I get really scared and nervous and I worry I'm not going to impress them and then I'm not going to impress Nevadic or represent Nevadic well and then they're going to have a bad reputation and sort of goes down that spiral. Yeah, and I've been there. So how do you how do you handle when that happens? One, prep again. If I, especially if it's metrics, I'm terrible at mental math. I'm terrible at remembering numbers. So especially having any metrics I want to call out prepped, anything in that in advance really helps me so I don't feel like I'm coming at it from thin air. And one thing that's really helped is I took a public speaking class a few years ago from like during my professional life. It wasn't in college or anything like that. And one thing they taught us was if you ever feel like you don't know what you're going to say next, just pause. Just stop talking. You've probably heard me just randomly pause a few times in this podcast. And it helps me so much because so often I speak fast. I'm from Jersey. It's what we do. And I feel like I have to keep going and give a really smart answer. But I realize sometimes by just saying something, then stopping sounds more intelligent than just keep going, keep going, keep going. That's really good advice. I've never taken a public speaking class. I would like to. I just had Scott Towsley on the pod. We just recorded our episode. He and I were chatting about how a lot of times folks who are in these types of roles will take improv classes. And that's like another tool that you can add to the belt that just helps your ability to react in the moment and sort of be able to handle a bunch of different stuff. 
whatever happens in the board meeting is probably not going to be as crazy as whatever happened in the improv class in terms of what they're throwing at you. So I thought that that was really interesting as well. It's not something that I've tried, but I'd like to. I've heard that a few times from startup people. I think anything where you have to practice public speaking beyond just metrics and presentations also teaches you how to do it in an engaging and interesting way, which can be useful and also give you a little more confidence if you know you're a good public speaker, you know how to tell a good story. Mm. On this line, I'm wondering, have you ever been in a position where you're the person presenting, you're the head of growth, and for whatever reason, the numbers that you're going to be presenting in that session aren't what you hoped for? and how you approach that, and if it's different than how you might approach that same session when the numbers look really, really good. Have you ever struggled with that? Definitely. We have to report, as I mentioned, weekly on our performance. And then sometimes for some random weeks, the leads pipeline, the users, they all just go down, and you might not know why. What's funny is the fix for if things are good or bad are kind of the same. You just need to know what happened and why and how you're going to address it. So even when things are looking up, you want a reason behind it. You don't just be like, I'm a genius. Everything's working. Yeah, yeah, You want to say, oh, we ran this campaign. We did this experiment. This is why it is up. If things are down, give the same reason. Be said, you know, we tried this thing. Or it's also for both very okay to say sometimes market conditions. You know, last week a lot happened in the startup world. It's understandable that maybe your leads were down or new users didn't sign up as much. So for context, this is the Monday after the SVB craziness. Yeah. So definitely shook the startup world. I'm sure a lot of people were not evaluating software that week. We're maybe trying to figure out if they still had money in the bank, which totally understandable. But either way, whether it is market conditions, things you tried, just having some sort of reason, whether up or down, makes you feel a lot better. Because again, if it didn't work out, what you can just always say is, but this is how we're going to address it. And this is what we're going to try next. As long as you have a next, a new experiment, something to work on it, then I think sometimes actually board members, anyone who's intelligent respects you more because they realize that you're thinking about the reasons behind things going well or not. You're not just coasting off of success. And it might even help increase that trust if things are going well, because look, the reality is we can do poor work and have good things happen and we could do amazing work and have bad results. That's the nature of this type of work. And so what I'm hearing you say is it has less to do with luck and more to do with planning out your next move using the data and then saying, because of this, I'm going to, or we're going to do X or Y. And if things are going well and you're doing that, I think that that builds a ton of trust. And if things aren't going well, I think that also builds trust. That's what I'm hearing you say. I do think it's important to point out sometimes though, if things are just going lucky, right? Like in some ways, speaking back to this week, if your Brex are ramp right now, you're probably having a really good week because of the market conditions. So it is important to point out when things, you do get a little lucky and why but not just always use that as your reason or not just use like, we're great. Everyone loves us. That's why we're growing. Absolutely. We've talked a ton about tips, advice, stories, philosophy, when it comes to being a one person head of growth, anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share to help other folks who are in similar positions like yours. We touched about this a little bit with prioritization, but I'm going to say it again because I've done this and I've seen so many growth marketers, everyone do this. Don't feel like you have to do everything everyone else is doing because you're going to get that constantly. You're constantly going to get from CEOs, from salespeople, from product people, from everyone, this company is doing this and it's working well. Why aren't we doing this? And just remember, if you're doing a million things, you're not going to do anything well. And you're going to feel burned out. And that's when the Sunday scaries, that's when you have imposter syndrome, that's when everything adds up. 
You know, you're burned out when someone suggests something to you and you can think of every reason in the book not to do it. And you just feel tired immediately. You're just exhausted just by the idea. Exactly. Yep. You know, like someone suggesting that might be a good idea and your instant reaction is, again, the five things that it's why it's not going to work. So also remember prioritization, like prioritize you, prioritize what you need to have balance in your life. Because also say any good idea I had, any great growth experiment, anything never came to me when I was sitting on a laptop for 12 hours straight. So really remember, like taking that step back, taking time for you is just as important for your long-term and short-term success. Yeah, it's, it's such a great reminder. What's your favorite uh, you time activity? I'm training for a half right now. I fell back in love with running after taking a hiatus from it for a little bit. And I love that time because it's just, I live in New York. I live with a lot of roommates. You're constantly surrounded by people. And this is time where I can just be alone, maybe think, listen to music, listen to a podcast and just ruminate and not feel like there's something constantly happening, just kind of be in the moment. Yeah. Get outside, clear your head, refill your cup, all that good stuff. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on, sharing a lot of your stories and insights today. For folks who are listening to this, where can they find you online? Not surprisingly, LinkedIn's probably the easiest option. I post about there. Feel free to message me. I absolutely love talking with other marketers, growth people. I'm a one-person team. I don't get to talk to marketers every day or growth professionals in my job. So I really love the opportunity to do it. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have an ask. The biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.